fantasies, pulsing swells, them who knows them, seven tales, on distant reefs, on fatal shores, heroes and heroines from days of yore, they live on the fringes, pack mondo cones, orbs of mortal conequence, pulverizing bones, adventures and nightmares for young and old. These are the greatest stories never Dysentery and Diamonds in the Rough on the Subcontinent by Jed Smith As I projectile vomit from my perch high in the Himalayas, a solid stool is attempting to force its way out of my puckered anus. It's a subcontinental classic, the double-ended purge, and I was in the guts of it due to some unwashed vegetables we'd purchased from a roadside stall earlier that day. It came on fast, interrupting Joel Parkinson's breakdown of the El Salvador World Tour event on Ain't That Swell, my podcast, forcing me to run for the edge of the mountain hut we were squatting in. As I lay on my stomach with my head hanging out of the open air hut off a sheer drop, my vomit landed with a splatter below amidst wild growing marijuana plants and apple trees. The moment our inaugural swellness pilgrimage had ended, wheels began falling off all over the place. My travel partner for this leg, Pierce, a former ice hockey player and referee from the prairies of central Canada via Tofino, had slipped on a muddy embankment that day carrying a 40-litre container of water and tweaked his back. Meanwhile, the van carrying the rest of the pilgrims back to Dharamshala had been pulled over by police and frisked for hashish. They managed to avoid detection through a brilliantly orchestrated pantomime of selfies with the police and other means of distraction. Two weeks of hardcore Wim Hof with the pilgrims had primed my body well for the purge. The vicious microbe was detected and rejected before reaching my lower intestine, sparing me the ignominy of shitting my pants while spewing. The violence of the spasms did, however, tear a muscle in my throat, and I would spend the next days feeling as though I'd been punched in the larynx. The timing couldn't have been worse. With the pilgrimage complete, we were now headed the entire length of India to its further southern extremity in search of waves. Nursing a severely compromised immune system, myself, Pierce and Pilgrim Tay from Cape Cod boarded a 13-hour night bus to Delhi, the first leg of a three-day hell mission that involved buses, rickshaws, flights and a final 18-hour ferry trip through cyclonic seas to reach our intended destination. Descending from altitude along terrifying mountain roads adjacent to roaring rivers, the potential of a head-on collision lay around every blind corner. After 20 minutes looking out the windshield, I put my nightshades on and tried to find peace with death and have faith in the chipper young driver pounding chais and cigarettes to keep himself awake through the night. 
The following morning, we were spat out onto the side of a highway on the outskirts of Delhi. The mercury was already in the mid-30s, and as I stumbled down the stairs of the bus, I had one hand blocking the bright sun from my eyes and the other clasping the tear in my throat. A scrum of hungry cabbies immediately encircled us and Pierce stumbled backwards into several water bottles filled with petrol, earning the ire of an irate young Israeli marooned by the side of the road on a broken-down motorcycle. "'What are you doing?' Did you not see them right there? He gesticulated at Pierce. Dressed in billowing hemp pants and a loose-fitting wrestling singlet that exposed a bad case of backney, he was at the end of his tether, and Pierce wisely backpedaled apologetically. In that moment of distraction, the bus the Israeli man was waiting for pulled in and out of the stop, leaving him to chase after it, screaming at the driver and smashing the vehicle's side panel. This moment of karmic schadenfreude provided a brief boost to our spirits in what was an otherwise demoralising scene. I gestured threateningly at the nearest taxi driver and burst through the scrimmage, jogging 10 or so metres away to finish the last half of a hash joint smuggled from the Himalayan weed fields. The moment I lit it, A cop rode past on his motorbike, forcing me to swiftly tuck it behind my back as I smiled politely. Of the hundreds of pounds of marijuana I've ingested in my life, this half a joint was for sure among the most transcendent. The pain relief and patience it brought me prevented a potentially catastrophic boil over on the side of the highway in Delhi. And in my numb stupor, I was able to rejoin the group and continue the next leg of this holy pilgrimage. At the airport, we fashioned a hobo bed out of newspapers on the ground of the food court, did six rounds of Wim Hof, and passed out for a few hours. Three more hours on a flight surrounded by Indian elites colonising both sides of your armrest, and we'd landed in India's deep south to find our hotel booking didn't exist. We found another, slept a few hours, then loaded our boards and bags into rickshaws and raced to the port for the final and most harrowing leg of the journey, an 18-hour boat ride through monsoonal seas. Mercifully, the soldiers at the entrance to the ferry refused to let us board. The government, we were told, wasn't willing to wear the heat if the ship went down and a bunch of tourists died. Locals, they were fine with that but not us white folk. Once that ship had sailed, we were left with only one option. Jump a train and keep heading south to explore India's abundant, swell-battered coastline. The charts were promising enough. Five feet at 12 seconds with light winds. And as anyone who has read the Great Railway Bazaar or seen the Darjeeling Limited will know, there are far worse things you can do than travel India by train. The nation's rail network is a modern marvel, spanning every corner of this vast country, crossing rivers, rounding mountains, ripping through cities in conditions ranging from unimaginably overcrowded squalor to palatial comfort. Accessed by a staggering 4 billion people annually, train travel is not without its risks, however, particularly for women. 
female-only waiting areas, female-only carriages, signs warning not to harass women, emergency phones for women to call at intervals along the platform, and daytime police presence hinted at the peril women travelling by train in India exist in. Then there are the derailments. During our trip, India suffered one of the worst in its history when three separate trains collided, killing 261 and injuring a thousand. In a country as congested as India, the idea of lugging surfboards the length of it might seem torturous. And yet the opposite was true. If anything, the board bags sucked in a kind of curiosity that made our passage seamless. One of the many to take interest in the contents of our coffin bag was a merchant seaman named Jibin, who steered us towards the sleeper carriage as the train rolled in. He helped us carry the boards on, then stuffed them into a vacant bed above us. We spent the next several hours enraptured by his remarkable tales from across the seas. Portly with rice and bread and wearing the pitch black tan typical of India's labouring class, Jibin's job required him to spend a year at a time at sea. He recalled the time he'd sailed into Libya at the height of the civil war to drop off a load of barley, pulling into port to see bombs exploding and battle raging. We were too afraid to leave the boat. You would hear shells exploding. You could see the smoke rising from the city. There were holes in buildings like this, he said, illustrating the holes with his hands and waggling his head from side to side. Jibin was the ship's engineer, meaning when the ship's engine blew up in the middle of the ocean, it was left to him and three others to work 20-hour shifts for days at a time to get it going again. With supplies dwindling rapidly, the crew was rationed to drinking water by the bottle cap. Before bed, we were allowed one bottle cap of water each, Jibin said, laughing and waggling his head. On another occasion, a spark from a welder ignited a diesel spill that set off a blaze, killing two of his shipmates. Jibin managed to escape, only to return and fight the blaze. Then there was the time his friend was on a ship taken hostage by pirates, off the coast of Somalia. The ship, along with the crew, would spend several years in captivity as the pirates tried to extort the owners for a ransom. The owners never paid, leaving seven of the crew to die of starvation. Eventually, the pirates cut the boat loose in the middle of the ocean, allowing the remaining crew to survive, including Jibin's friend, who'd lost 25 kilograms. That's why you only work for the big companies, because they will pay for your release. The small ones? No, said Jibin, smiling and waggling his head. For all that is said about the challenges of travelling India, let alone with a board bag, it is the unending curiosity and heartwarming human connection that remains the country's biggest draw card. In a country of a billion people, the opportunities for uplifting interactions are infinite. The English was surprisingly good, and everywhere we went we were greeted by smiles, polite questions about our origins and purpose, and a brief dialogue before we went our separate ways with a pleasant squirt of positive neurochemicals. This kindness and curiosity would increase the deeper into the squalor and poverty we ventured. It was as if India's poor had realised that the most revolutionary thing they can do in a country as corrupted by caste and class as this was to smile, laugh and connect with each other as much as possible. Comradery, community and the boost this provides to the human spirit 
is one thing that cannot be controlled by market forces. It belongs to the wise, not the wealthy. And the moment you set foot across the invisible line that separates rich from poor in India, you could feel the temperature drop on our presence. The indiscriminate smiles vanished, replaced by a practice indifferent to Westerners and their countrymen alike that screamed insecurity. The value system of Indian elites, like elites everywhere, is aflame with a scarcity and insecurity complex, more concerned with keeping people down and away than with heartwarming connection. In doing so, they only manage to rob themselves of the one thing that makes life worth living, love and connection with your common man. By the end of our train ride, we would be in Kerala, India's southernmost state. With its palm and coconut trees, pastel-coloured fishing boats and brown water beach breaks that, we were about to find out, moved in heaving hollow ways, it couldn't have struck more of a contrast with the snow-capped mountains of the north. Culturally, the south is equally distinct. Home to large Christian and Muslim populations along with the more predominant Hindus, the state is famous for the unique brand of communism that's dominated electoral results since 1957, with impressive markers. Among them, the highest literacy rate in India, 95%, and a healthcare system where, quote, citizens earning only a few dollars a day still qualify for free heart surgery, according to the Washington Post. It's made Keralans among the most sought-after migrant workers in the world and seen a major exodus to Arab Gulf states where they've been able to earn significant pay packets before returning and building opulent family compounds. These remarkably colourful and grandiose buildings were sprinkled among the bare-bones concrete structures these families had shared only a few years before, providing a powerful reminder of the boon in capital that responsible socialism, communism, education and healthcare can yield. Kerala had one other notable quirk. Where killing a sacred cow elsewhere in India might see you lynched to death in the street, Beef was back on the menu in a big way here, and not the shoddy factory-farmed rubbish we eat in the West. You could follow your meal from the middle of the street, where it was blocking traffic, to the open-air butcher, cleaving them to bits a few inches from your face, to the mind-melting beef-fry curry served on the plate in front of you with a side of paratha, the Indian equivalent of a deconstructed croissant. The slaughter of cows, however, has created a fault line ripe for exploitation by the polarising Hindu nationalist Prime Minister Narendra Modi. In yet another classic piece of political obfuscation, redistributing wealth from Indian elites and billionaires to the working class, nationwide healthcare, workers' rights or dignified housing for the poor does not rate a mention in Modi's world. What kind of meat you eat is Modi's biggest concern. As the train wound through wetlands and rice fields, we watched piles of plastic, tarpaulin shacks, and more permanent but equally dishevelled concrete structures pass by, all of them marked with that mysterious black, green moss or mould characteristic of tropical third world locations everywhere. The train carriage was minimalist to say the least and marked with the same mysterious black scuff. To pass the time, we cracked open the chessboard, attracting the attention of a young Indian spectator. In between moves, jibe and deny, talked cricket. 
as it happened, Australia had just beaten India in the playoff for the number one test cricket team in the world. Every time I was asked by an Indian where I was from, I would reply with Australia, the number one test cricket team in the world, to rolled eyes and a genuine pang of resentment before the smiles returned. We'd claim the title at the aptly named Lord's Cricket Ground in England, and Jibin and I riffed on the irony that two maltreated former colonies had battled it out to an audience of mostly upper-class British aristocrats. After getting the better of Pilgrim Tay in the chess match, the Indian chess spectator requested to play the winner, me. I wiped the board of him in under 10 minutes, scoring a checkmate just as the train pulled into our station, causing a mad scramble to pack up the board, our belongings, and get onto the platform. In the chaos, I left one of the few pairs of polarised sunglasses I'd seen in India on the train. I assume, to my chest victim. Checkmate, indeed. The train platform had no bridge, so with the help of a local man, we lowered the board coffins onto the tracks and scampered across before the next steel contraption rolled in. Prior to departing, we caught our first glimpse of the ocean with what looked like swell lines on the horizon and sheet glass conditions. Monsoon season, unsurprisingly, means lots of swell. Combined with light winds and hundreds of kilometres of coastline speckled with river mouths, points and jetties, we were confident of finding something surfable. We were not, however, expecting an Indian version of Stradbroke Island. I'm convinced the surfing world has it all wrong when it comes to surf exploration. Too often the fixation is on remote reef passes and misto slabs. As ideal and admirable as this fixation is, the well of perfect slabs and reefs has been largely sucked dry in the age of social media. Not to mention the resource spend required to get to these places. The random four to six foot barreling beach break on the other hand is abundant, underrated and fairly easy to score with no one around. Mainland India we were about to find out was teeming with them. There was only one problem. Surfing here is illegal during the monsoon season. As we stood atop sacred orange cliffs and looked down on teepees blowing their guts out in both directions, a pair of portly middle-aged men in red and yellow lifeguard uniforms patrolled the shoreline wielding bamboo sticks and barking at beachgoers to get back from the water's edge. We'd arrived in a part of India considered holy by pilgrims who ventured here hoping to cleanse themselves in the sacred shallows. We were hoping to do the same, and I'd be damned if a couple of fat cunts with a skinny stick were going to stop me from getting tubed. The authorities were wise in their appointment of lifeguards. They'd chosen the universal cross-cultural nemesis to good times everywhere, the middle-aged crank. Among our overwhelmingly positive interactions with Indians, there had been one exception, apart from snooty elites, and that was men over the age of 50. I am reminded here of something two-time world champion and patron saint of Australian surf culture Tom Carroll once told me about men in this age bracket. It's a common experience for men as we get older to get caught in the negative, repetitive thinking. And then you gather yourself around of a bunch of mates who do the same thing and it kind of gets the momentum up, he told me, in his attempt to explain the ailment we know in the West as grumpy old men. 
This ailing neural chemistry and the generally negative, envious outlook it generates is the enemy of fun and youthful expression everywhere. Combine it with a uniform, a whistle, a whacking stick, and the full weight of Indian law, and my chances of packing a golden front-lit cone in front of these orange cliffs had taken a hit. Two weeks in the mountains, however, had removed my hinges at the sight of a barreling beach break with no one out. I was surfing by hell or high water. The dazzling footwork honed over a decade plus playing rugby league surely meant I'd be no match for these middle-aged nufties trying to guard an entire shoreline. I began to psych myself up. I wanted this. How bad do you want it? Let's fucking go, cunt. I'd be fine once I made it to the water. At least until I had to return. The remote chance that I'd be arrested, detained and and deported seemed a worthy trade-off for a couple of solo cones, so I made my dash. I waited until the lifeguards were at their furthest apart and took off sprinting 50 or so metres across the sand and gut-slided across the shore break. As I sprint-paddled and duck-dived, I heard the whistles going off, but there was nothing they could do. I was out and refused to face the shore unless I was paddling for a wave. Ignorance would be my defence, and I was sticking to it. As I settled into the session, I realised our Indian stratty was riddled with deftly lumps and wobble. With no stiff offshores to clean it up, the wonky mid-period swell would heave out of deep water, hucking plenty of ocean right on the shore with no obvious takeoff spot, let alone a chip or roll-in. To knife one out here would require a technical under-lip takeoff behind a dagger of a section straight into the trough and hope you somehow avoided catching a rail on the litany of lumps and wobble. With a blown-out meniscus and a small tear in my ACL, this was specifically not what my doctor had ordered. Yet try and try I would over the coming days. With nothing but a couple of pocket rides and small closeouts on day one, I returned to shore to face the music. I'd planned to stay out until dark to avoid detection, but I was bored, so I went in to see what my punishment would be. It arrived in the form of an irate, semi-overweight Indian man lecturing me about the danger of the conditions and telling me the police were on their way. As I had done many times before, I fled the scene. With an identical forecast for the following week, we set our sights on the surrounding coastline to avoid the hassle. This is where the Indian surf trip comes into its own, and where surfing itself takes on that magical quality that made it such a hit with the hippies in the 70s. Tourism in the mainstream sense is a flawed concept. It almost always brings you to a place teeming with other tourists where almost all semblance of authentic local culture has been stripped to make it as user-friendly to tourists as possible. Surfing rips you out of this cultural vacuum, sending you careening through the true weirdness of your chosen destination where almost no tourists have been. It's these in-between bits on the search to find waves where all the magic happens, a fact that has been forgotten by the modern obsession of strike missions to score mindless perfection. With our boards strapped to the roof of our rickshaw, we set off for a left point setup, weaving through tropical foliage and past communist murals before stopping between a mosque and some fishing boats to find an almost world-class setup doing its thing. 
Amidst the mostly shapeless straight-handers, we saw glimmers of what this place could do in the form of the odd, thick, squared-out nugget. The good-to-bad wave ratio was about 1 to 50, but as we contemplated whether to surf, another middle-aged crank confronted us to tell us we weren't allowed. Too dangerous. Big wave. Fishing boat cannot go out, the fisherman told us. It was four foot max. Any smaller and I wouldn't even bother. Yeah, but we're not in boats, mate. We surf, I tried, but he wasn't having it. We pressed on, passing another river mouth with potential, more palm trees and bamboo huts selling chai tea and sugary snacks. We were headed to a spot a local had told us we could surf without persecution in this prohibition era India. The road turned to a narrow dirt strip and our rickshaw driver began to wince and whine at the pummeling his suspension was taking. What was wrong with the kilometres of beach we'd already passed, he asked. Why couldn't we surf there? Or here? Or here, he gestured. Trying to explain the concept of finding a wave to a person who knows nothing about surfing using broken English offers a linguistic challenge that would give Noam Chomsky a migraine. Fortunately, we arrived at the temple marking our reef break shortly after to find it blown to smithereens and producing nothing but windy burgers. Thank God we'd only driven two hours with the three of us stuck shoulder to sweaty shoulder in the back of this rickshaw to get there. Down the beach, enough rips and turbulence had created a peak of sorts, producing the sketchiest of semi-closeout pits. A quick spritz was in order, but after I got pinched by a tube, forcing me into the splits and nearly blowing out my knee, I returned to shore. Once more, my nemesis awaited me, another middle-aged man posturing around near my belongings. As I approached, a bizarre virtue signaling exercise began in which he jogged a few metres, then dropped to the ground to perform a half set of the worst push-ups you've ever seen. The fact he'd chosen my board bag as his exercise station on a deserted beach told me something was coming my way. Do you know surfing, he asked as I approached. He was missing several teeth. Surfing is like this, he said, sneering at me and striking a pose reminiscent of an Egyptian hieroglyph. All you do is this, he said, mimicking a person paddling. The fat cunt was mocking me. I was off it. The surf was absolutely fucked and I'd spent the last hour battling a relentless rip before tweaking my knee on one of the three waves I'd caught. Do you know surfing, I asked, with as much venom as I could muster before quickly disrobing and pegging my belongings into my coffin. The fat, toothless imbecile took this as his opportunity to walk a few metres away and start swinging a giant bamboo stick into some rocks in yet another bogus attempt at wellness. If this is how it was going to be, I figured we may as well head straight for the eye of Sauron and run straight up the guts and jam our fingers fair in the ring of the Indian establishment. This was the home of Gandhi after all, a man who became one of the most beloved figures in modern history by sitting peacefully in protest while power-mad cranks beat the shit out of him and his followers. Gandhi's biggest fear was that India would cast off the shackles of colonialism only to assume the same power-hungry authoritarian posturing of the British colonialist wankers. In their attitude towards surfing, they had done just this. 
as dawn broke on my final attempt to surf the stratty, hossigeresque beachy in front of the sacred orange cliffs, I sat hiding among dense, tropical foliage as lifeguards patrolled the shoreline and asked myself, what would Gandhi do? I wanted to respect India's cultural mores, but at the end of the day, I wanted to get tubed way more. It was peaceful enough. No one was going to get hurt, except maybe my anterior cruciate ligament. So I ran for glory once more, bored under one arm, back arched, head back, in my signature running style, reminiscent of the great American sprinter, Michael Johnson. This time, there were no whistles, just religious pilgrims waving and hassling me for a selfie. The conditions had improved from my first session. The period was up to 12 seconds, the tide was perfect, mid and rising, and there was a bit more stiffness to the offshore. It was a legitimate 7 out of 10. Five and six foot teepees detonated everywhere, blowing spit in every direction. The drop was still harrowing, but with a little bit less warp and wobble, I was willing to risk it for the biscuit on a deep backdoor takeoff. When a six-foot poo-brown triangle materialised in front of me, I sprint-paddled deep behind the dagger, kicking and scratching to stay under the ledge. I did everything right, keeping my composure in the moment of truth where you either dig in and commit or bitch out and go over. Head down and chest forward, I knifed, but at the last second, the carpet was pulled ever so slightly out from under me. The rib caused me to lose my rail and my balance, pulling me onto my heels, out of the hunch and upright. If it were a sequence shot by a water wizard like Scott Eichner, it would have shown a perfectly positioned surfer doing everything right only to be denied by some bullshit bump before being absolutely obliterated. In that moment, as I wound up the windows and attempted to rein in the fumbled drop, I felt the lip detonate next to me and looked out the tube, which had intersected with the rising sun to create a glorious golden cone, out of which I could see the sacred orange cliffs and bright green foliage that attracted thousands of pilgrims. No lifeguard whistles, no police, no pilgrims hassling me for a selfie. I had reached the sweetest spot known to mankind, where material wealth and possessions are worthless, where happiness, purpose, peace and beauty exist eternally and in abundance. I had reached Nirvana, the cone zone, if only for a split second before the thing blew its guts out and the foam ball ripped me seven ways from Sunday, sending me straight back to the spinning wheel of eternal suffering known as Samsara. In that moment, I did the only thing I knew. I scratched back into position for another e. The end.